Thank you, Dave. Well, of all of the messages, by the way, this is our 80th message in the book of Genesis. And of all of these 80 messages that I've preached through the book of Genesis, this has the simplest title of all of them. Simplest one. It doesn't get any more simple than this. Trust him. Trust him. As simple as it may be, it is perhaps the most profound demand, command made of us in the Bible to trust him. And if we're going to do that at all during this service, we should probably begin by praying and asking for his help. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, one thing is abundantly clear is that no human being is able to truly trust without the help of the Holy Spirit. We've proven that over and over again. We cannot trust you without you. We are fully and totally dependent people. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit would guide me and us through this passage in the 43rd chapter of the book of Genesis and that you would be glorified as we just sang. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, Several years ago, I recited for you something that was written on my mother's bathroom wall when I was growing up. Uh, Several of you may not have heard it or may not have been here, so I'd like to recite it for you again. It's short. Trust him. When dark doubts assail thee, trust him when they, thy strength is small. Trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him then through cloud and sunshine all thy cares upon him cast till the storms of life are over and the trusting days are past. This was written, this was a hymn from the 1800s that my mom had written on a plaque in the bathroom just at the right height so that whenever someone would have a seat in the bathroom, they would read this. And so, must have spent a lot of time in that bathroom because over time, it was etched in my memory. And before long, I can recall walking to the bus stop and this thing, trust him when dark doubts assail thee, trust him when thy strength is small. It just echoed in my mind wherever I went. So you never know, moms. You put those little plaques somewhere, they could be something that sticks with your kid into their latter years of their life. As simple as these words are, the reason they were so profound for me is because they bring to the surface maybe the most important message in the whole Bible. And that is that without trust, relationship cannot exist. Relationship is the only essential ingredient for a relationship to begin. And I say to begin because you need only a very, very small measure, like a mustard seed of trust, in order to begin a relationship with anyone. Anyone. Think about for a second all the relationships in your life. Marital relationships, relationships with children, relationships with friends, business relationships, even the relationship you have with your dog or your cat. There has to be some small measure of trust for the relationship to begin, right? Simple. Even if you're going to have a a conversation with someone, you have to at least trust that you can be in the same room with them. Small trust has to be there. In your relationship with God, if you're going to have a relationship, you must have trust for it to start. For it to start. But then the next logical question, if we want to take it one step further, it's clear when we read the Bible that God's desire is for his relationship to be the relationship 
that is most important, important out of all the relationships you have in your life. We know that because the very first commandment is thou shall have no other gods before me. That means nothing should be more important in your life than that relationship with God. That is number one. And also, God wants us to grow in our relationship. It's clear. You can't just enter in and have a surface level, superficial relationship and God says, okay, you're good. No, his goal is for you to grow and grow and grow and grow until your very last day. So the next question we should ask is, how does trust grow? If I need a deeper relationship, that means I need a deeper level of trust. Think about when you first met your spouse, if you're married. It started out with just that first meeting. You didn't need much trust, right? Just a little bit. But then as you grew and you wanted to take vows where you're committing for the rest of your life to be with somebody, what has to happen for you to get to that point? Your trust has to grow to the point where you feel like, I can be totally intimate with this person, totally transparent. The only way for that to happen is if trust grows, right? So how does trust grow? You ever thought about that? If God commands that my relationship with him grow, how does trust grow? Well, grows by a single word. One single word. You know what it is? Risk. Risk. You cannot grow in trust unless you grow at the same time in risk. I'm going to explain. When you entered into your relationship with your spouse or with anyone, you knew that there was a potential that you might get hurt. There's a potential. It's there. And it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. Sometimes the hurt will be big and permanent. Sometimes it'll be small. Tiny little hurts, like, oh, they lied to me, or, oh, they said something nasty to me. But either knowingly or unknowingly, you entered into this relationship knowing, you know what, I care about this person enough, I'm willing to take the risk of being hurt, having my heart shattered by this person. It's worth it. I can't be without them. I want to be with this person for the rest of my life. Think about a business relationship. You enter into a business relationship knowing there's a potential my business could get hurt. They may run out of money. They may not be honest business practitioners and I could be surprised. They may go bankrupt. They may cheat me and run out of town with my money. But you measure the risk and you realize I'm ready to enter into this trust relationship. So in order for trust to grow, risk has to grow. Therefore, the depth of your trust, you might want to jot this down because it happens to be the big idea for our whole message today. The depth of your trust is revealed by what you're willing to risk. You say, I trust God. My next question is, do you risk? Said a little differently, your relationship with God is based entirely upon The fact that God demands that your relationship with him be the deepest relationship you have. So you say, I want to know. Have you ever said this? I want to have the kind of relationship that like a Peter had with Jesus. We know what that takes. You got to be willing to step out of a boat onto water and believe you won't sink. Talk about risk. If you want the kind of trust that Peter had, it's going to take risk. Or you might say, Luke, you've been teaching through Genesis, and my favorite character is Abraham. I want to trust God like Abraham did. Well, guess what it's going to take? You're going to have to be willing to risk walking out into the desert not knowing where you're going. That's what it says in the New Testament about Abraham. He went out not knowing where he was going. Talk about risk. If you want your relationship with God to grow, it's going to require a steady, 
increase in risk throughout your life. Otherwise, it will stop growing. It will grind to a halt. In his younger years, Jacob had demonstrated a kind of trust in God that we've really been impressed with. For the past, I don't know, five, six months, we've been learning about Jacob and now his son Joseph. Well, Jacob is now old. He's in his later years, and trusting God for Jacob in his later years seems to be a little bit harder than it was when he was younger. Have you ever found that to be true? When you're younger, you're willing to live adventurously and take risks that sometimes aren't real smart risks. They're not risks for the right cause. And Jacob, we've seen, boy, he was a risky guy, right? But in his older years, it's become a little bit harder. Taking risks is not as easy as it once was for him. And so it's become difficult. But God, listen to me, is not finished with Jacob yet. And he's not finished with you yet either, no matter how old you might be. So here's where we are in our study. We're in Genesis chapter 43. And let me give you a little bit of background in case you weren't here. There's a big famine in the land. People are starving. This is a bad one. There's lots of famines in the Bible. I don't know if you noticed that, but this one happens to be a pretty bad one. Everybody's starving. And so people are running out of food. Jacob and his boys are running out of food. Jacob sends his 10 of his boys out to Egypt where they don't know it, but their little brother Joseph has risen to the most powerful man in all the land under Pharaoh. And they sold him into slavery 13 years ago because they hated him so much. Remember that? And so they went and they met up with Joseph and they didn't recognize him, but Joseph recognized them. And so he was caught up in emotion that says several times he kept weeping and weeping. And in our next chapter, he even weeps some more. He's caught up in this emotion and he says to his brothers, listen, I want to test you to see if you're really honest men. So go back and get your little brother, Benjamin. And if you bring him back to me, then I'll know you're honest. So here's where we are. These 10 brothers have gone back home. Jacob is waiting there with Benjamin, the youngest, because he didn't want to let Benjamin go. And we're going to explain why in just a minute. So these 10 brothers have just come back with all this grain and they've made the food and they've eaten it all already. And now they're still running out of food. They need to figure out what to do next. And Jacob, Jacob has presumed that his son Joseph has been dead for all these years. And Benjamin is all he has left. I want you to know something before we get into this passage. This is really important. If you were to characterize all of Jacob's young life, you might be well to summarize it by saying this. Jacob was a romantic. What we know most about this guy is that he spent most of his young years working to win the heart of the love of his life. Rebecca. And so he spent all these years working for her. And guess what else they found? She couldn't have children. And so Jacob and Rebecca were kind of distraught and they prayed and God gave her two kids. One was Joseph and then in her later years she had Benjamin. And guess what happened? She died in childbirth. Jacob's whole life was about his wife. He loved her, cherished her. So in his mind, this is really important, his whole family really was his wife and Joseph and Benjamin. Those to him, in his way of thinking, that was his true family. So when you read this passage, you have to think like Jacob thought. Those were really my closest ones. Those were the gifts that I got from God. And now, 
He's standing at a place in his life, in his older years, where he risks losing Benjamin too? No way. I'm not doing it. That's where we pick up. Grab your Bibles. Genesis 43, with all that in mind, I want you to see what God has to say to Jacob. Genesis 43, verses 1 through 14 this morning. It's displayed on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man, talking about Joseph here, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Talking about Benjamin. If you will send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, remember that's another name for Jacob. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I'll be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, this is the key to the whole passage, church. If I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. In this passage, Judah, that's Jacob's fourth son, Judah and Jacob have this dialogue together, and it's kind of a heated one. It really is. They're running out of food, and Judah approaches his father and says, Look, man, we're dying here. You're going to have to let go of Benjamin. I know this is hard for you, Dad, but look, all of us are at the doorstep of death here. We're running out of food. You've got to do this. Send Benjamin and we'll go get more food. But if you're unwilling to go, we're all going to die. That's what's happening here. And so there's this dialogue back and forth between Judah and Jacob. I want you to remember the life of Jacob for just a moment before we dissect this passage, would you? Jacob has proved time and time again that he's a man of faith. We've seen test after test for this guy. There's no question. This guy has real, genuine, tangible faith, right? He has it. But the depth of his faith is determined by his willingness to trust. And at times in his life and in your life, that can waver. That can go up and down. Because trust is an act of faith. 
Do you know, if I ask you this question, do you know what the difference between faith and trust is? Because in America, we kind of use those words interchangeably. And they're not. If you could explain what's the difference between faith and trust, because we say things like, have faith in God when things are struggling for us. Or somebody says, has trust in God. And we know that kind of means the same thing for us, right? The Bible uses these words differently. They're not the same thing. Let me take just a moment and explain to you how they're different and how they relate, okay? Faith, first of all, is a noun. Faith is something you have. Trust is a verb. Trust is something you do. That's where you need to start. Faith is a noun, something I possess. Trust is a verb, something I do. Or you might think about it like, like this. Trust is faith in action. I have faith. Trust proves that I have it, right? Think of your faith, your life, like a car. This is the easiest way. Kids, listen up. Every kid, let me see your eyeballs. Think of your faith like a car, okay? And this car, according to God, is the only thing that can get you to heaven. You want to get to heaven? You have to have faith. And what inside that car, there's this big thing that makes a car move. What is it? It starts with an E. An engine. According to the Bible, trust is the engine that makes your car of faith move throughout your life. That's the difference between the two. And at some points, your life of faith can stop and stop moving. And it's because you've stopped taking acts of trust, which keeps that car moving. Does that make sense? Everybody go like this. Yes, good. Trust is the engine that moves your life of faith along. And it's God's desire that it never stops moving. Hope that woke you up. Your life of faith doesn't stop just because you're in your elderly years like Joseph is. It's supposed to continue by regular acts of trust. God is not done moving Jacob, and he's not done moving you yet. And in this passage, we're going to see three different ways that God is moving Jacob in his latter years to continue taking acts of trust. Otherwise, his car is going to sputter out. And Jacob might be saying, Lord, haven't I trusted enough in my life? Don't you remember that whole wilderness thing? God's saying, no boy, not until you take your final act, final breath, you're going to keep moving. And so as Jacob learns to trust God, we're going to learn right along with him this morning. Are you ready? Okay. First thing we're going to learn this morning, point number one, trust him with your time, even if time is scarce. In this particular passage, we're going to see there's a scarcity of more than just food here. The first thing we see is time, and let me explain why. First, trusting God with your time will guarantee that it's not wasted time. Look back at verse 10. This is Judah talking to his father. And Judah says something that finally gets Jacob to wake up and start moving. Judah says in verse 10, If we had not delayed, Dad, we would now have returned twice. The key word is that word delay. That's a time indicator there. Dad, if we hadn't delayed, there's a paraphrase Bible. When I prepare, I lay out like five or six Bibles on my desk and I look at them all. I look at them all. And one of the paraphrases used the word procrastinate. Dad, you've been procrastinating. You're not making a decision here because you don't want to take a risk. Judah's saying, look, you're going to have to risk losing Benjamin or we're all going to die. Stop delaying. Let's do it. Let's make a move here, Dad. He's telling him to stop wasting time. And so Jacob is finally coming to realize that not making a decision is a decision. 
It's a decision. As we progress through these final chapters, here's what you're going to learn. This is really important. Why I say time is scarce. You're going to see this theme pop up a whole lot over the last seven chapters in the book of Genesis. Jacob is in his final moments. He's getting ready to die. And in a few chapters later, we're going to see that that happens. But he's starting to realize, I don't have much time left. This is really it for me. I can sense it. I can feel it. Even in the last chapter, he says, if I lose Benjamin, you're going to bring my gray hairs down to the grave with sorrow. Well, he wasn't just speaking figuratively there. He was speaking as an actual place in his heart. He knows he's dying. And his boys took him to mean that literally. And it comes up a whole lot in the next few chapters. Jacob knows that time is running out. It's scarce. And so, here with that final thought lingering in his head, I don't have much time left, Jacob is experiencing what you might call a frozen faith. You know what I mean by that? A frozen faith. Think back on that illustration of a car. All throughout his life, his car has been moving along. His faith has been growing because he's been taking acts of trust. Act of trust. And his faith is growing and growing. But as he's gotten older, those acts of trust have gotten less and less and less. Why? Because he's willing to risk less and less and less. He's already, I can imagine him saying, Lord, I've lost so much in my life. The love of my life is gone. Joseph's gone. He even said this last chapter. Last chapter. Simeon's gone. And now you'd take Benjamin too. Remember that from chapter 42? He's saying, Lord, I'm too old for this. I don't think I could survive another horrible loss like this. It would put me in the grave. And so he's saying, I don't have it in my engine anymore to do this. Now, this happens to almost all of us. It does. As we grow older, that vigor in our youthful years starts to die down because we don't know if we can handle that loss that we handled in our younger years. And so people who have have had this vibrant, faith-filled life in their younger years, as they grow older, it starts to get less and less. And they begin to hoard their time just like they would food if it was scarce. You ever seen the show Hoarders? How many of you have seen that show, Hoarders? Okay. Do you know there's such a thing as time hoarders? It is. It's a real thing, a real problem that people begin to face as they get older. Time hoarders. They recognize that time begins to look scarce. And so here's two ways that human beings respond when they feel like time is running out. Number one, they respond the way that God aims for us to respond. They say, Lord, time is short. What should I do? And they begin to store up for themselves treasures in that final retirement home, if you will. They know that time is short, and so they begin to let go of this world, and they start to store up for themselves treasures in heaven. Right? But there's a second way, and this is the most common way that people respond when they realize that time is short. They start to cling tighter to this world. They start to make bucket lists lining up for themselves things that they never got to do and so they spend the remainder of their time on themselves. This is how most of us use our time when we feel like it's short. And they're pitted against one another. Let me ask you a question. And I hope as I ask this, everyone in the room knows the answer to this. Immediately comes to mind. For whom were you made? For whom? For you or for the Lord? 
Let me read you the tiniest, tiniest little end of a verse that summarizes what is all over the Bible. There's probably a verse like this in every book of the Bible, but here's the clearest. Colossians 1.16, the end of it says this, all things were created through him and for him, including the highest of the created order, you. You were made for God. Let that sink in for just a minute. If I was made for something, that means I belong to him, right? Yes. That means your time isn't yours. It's his. It's simple logic, right? If I was made for him, that means my time isn't really mine. He gave it to me for his purposes. It's his plan that's unfolding through your life. And so you were made to glorify God and his beauty and reflect that beauty in all the ways that you spend your time. And so few people, listen carefully, ever find that satisfaction and happiness and joy that they're looking for in life. Do you know why? Because we spend most of our time living as if we were made for us. That's the simplest answer for why very few people ever find satisfaction in life. And so what do we do? We end up trying to fill our time with, oh, this will make me happy, and then it doesn't, so we want more of it. And then that doesn't make me happy, so we want more of it. And when you get older and you feel like time is running out, you fill your time with all this stuff that you think will make you happy, bucket lists, and it doesn't satisfy. And so we just compile bucket list after bucket list after bucket list. You were made for something else. And how you spend the remainder of your time as you feel like it's running out like Jacob is, is really important. Here's a simple test. I bet you most of you who are of considerable age have done something like this before. If you're in business or went to school, they probably had to do something like this. Here's a simple test that you can do today when you go home um, to help you know if you're wasting your time, using it for what God intends for you to use it for. I put a little piece of paper up on the screen Seen something like this? Down the long head to the paper, 24 slots, one hour of each, one per slot of each hour of the day, from midnight to 11. And on the top is each day of the week, Monday, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Monday through Sunday. Each one of those slots you're supposed to fill in with how you're spending your time, diligently. Set an alarm on your phone for each hour of the day. Some of it you'll be sleeping. And write down how you spend your time. And at the end of the week, look at it and say, Is the majority of this for me or is it for God? If I was made for him, what is the motive behind all the things that are in these boxes? It really doesn't matter what is in those boxes. You can vacuum the carpet for the glory of God. But why you're doing it really is what matters. Are you doing it because God gave you that house and you want to be a good steward over it? And you're glorifying God, singing as you vacuum, knowing with a grateful heart, I offer this to you, Lord. I want to take care of what you give me. It's for the glory of God. Only you will know, but it's a good practice. See how you spend your days. See how you spend those hours and minutes and seconds. And ask, is the majority for me or is it for the Lord? At the end of each point today, I'm going to give you three practical steps. And this is where I'm most excited for our sermon today. Because these are really important. And all three of these steps are the same for all three points. Same three steps, three different points. How can I begin to trust God more? First, how can I begin to trust God more with my time? That's the first thing I want to ask you. I'll put that next slide up for me. First one. Three practical ways that you can begin to trust God more with your time, especially if it's becoming scarce. 
and you know it's running out. Number one, first thing you need to do, you need to release it. If you want to trust God more with your time, this is step number one. You can't move on with your life until you've learned how to do this. Release it. That means to trust God with your time is to acknowledge that none of it belongs to you. This is the first step. Acknowledge this time is not my own. Moses, who wrote one of my favorite verses in all the Psalms, Psalm 90, wrote this. And it's something that I read to myself regularly. Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. What does that mean, a heart of wisdom? Well, quite frankly, to gain a heart of wisdom is to look at your days and say, I didn't control when I was born, so I can't control when I'm going to die. God's not going to be late, right? And so I can't control any of this. My time is not my own. And so I need to number my days. I need to use my time wisely. Because I know one day I'm going to have to give an account for how I used it. And what will I say when I'm standing before the Lord? Did I use my time wisely? That's what it means to number your days that you may gain a heart of wisdom. The second thing, practical step to start using your time, trusting the Lord with your time, invest it. Invest it. Ephesians 5.16, there's a real exhortation here. A real thing that you want to begin doing. Paul tells us to make the best use of our time. Why? Because the days are evil. You know what he means by that? Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. That means they're running out. Working against you. So, make the best use of your time. How do I make the best use of my time? Well, you need to start investing it in things that don't fade away. Invest in something that never dies. That's how you make the best use of your time. It's like, duh. And so you've been allotted a certain number of years, months, days, hours, minutes, and seconds. And they're ticking away. And you don't know when your last one is coming. So according to really the whole Bible, the best thing that you can do is to make the best use of your time by making sure that you're investing it in Heaven, storing up for yourselves treasures there. We're going to keep coming back to that because what Jesus said about that is really the key. Last thing, the last way that you can begin trusting God with your time is a no-brainer too. Pray for it. Pray for it. To trust God with your time is to acknowledge His plan for your life. Look at what James wrote. James 4, 13 through 15. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, think of this like a prayer, Lord, if you will it, if the Lord wills, we'll go do this, that, and the other thing. That ought to be the most common prayer of your day. If you will it, Lord, I'll go to Walmart. If you will it, Lord, I'll take the kids to Chuck E. Cheese or whatever. If you will it. This is the lifestyle of the Christian thinker. God has a plan for your life, but listen to me, church. It's his plan. It's not your own. And if you want to begin to trust him as time is ticking away, it begins with prayer. 
You have to start consulting him about how to use your time. What James is saying is, quite simply, ask God what his will is. If you want to boil it down, ask God what his will is for your time throughout your day. So that first point, first thing I encourage you to do, if time is scarce, trust God with your time. I want to change that around before we move on to point number two. Especially if time is scarce, trust God with your time. If you feel like time is running out, this is the first thing you need to ask God to help you to do. Lord, help me to trust you with the remaining time I have. Point number two. Second thing that Jacob learns, trust him with your resources. Even if resources are scarce. This is the most obvious one in the passage. Look at verses 11 through 12. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, do you hear the reluctance in his voice? Then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, these are key, and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. So follow me here. Jacob was acknowledging and accepting that what Judah was saying was the truth, and he realized that he could no longer delay and not make a decision. He had to start acting. Time had come. I've been procrastinating long enough. I've got to start acting. And you know what was interesting of what finally got Jacob to change his mind? I want to remind you, Jacob said no to sending Benjamin twice already. When they first went out, he said, you boys go, Benjamin's staying home. When they came back, the oldest brother, Reuben, said, Dad, trust me with Benjamin. In the last chapter, and he said, no, Benjamin isn't going. Now here a third time, they're pressuring him. Look, Dad, you've got to let go of Benjamin. Otherwise, we won't, the, the man said he won't give us any more food. Guess what finally got Jacob to budge? You know what it was? His grandchildren. Look at verse number 8. After uh, Judah said this to Jacob, things started to change. And he started to say, okay, I'll budge. Look at what it says. Uh, And Judah said to Israel's father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Time out. So he's saying, dad, if we don't go, we're going to die. Everybody with me? He's saying, both we and you, so not only we are going to die, and also our little ones. He's saying, dad, think about your grandkids. That's the little ones he's talking about. All of his sons are grown men. If you're not going to do this for us, think about your little grandkids. If you don't trust the Lord, they're going to die. So if you don't do it for yourself, begin taking those acts of trust that you used to take when you were younger for your grandkids. This is what he's encouraging his dad to do, and immediately Jacob wakes up. If it must be so, it must be so. And he starts changing his mind. So with that incentive in mind, Jacob was willing finally to take some risk. And you know what he says there? Take some of this, take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Why? Because they're running out of food. And so he says, I'm willing to risk the little resources we have left in order to get done what God needs to get done. I'm willing to risk our money. I'm willing to risk our food, which we don't have. We're all starving here. Do you follow me? Resources are scarce, but he's finally willing to trust God with his resources. Now, for the people of God, all the people of God, people way back then, people right now, God has instituted a measure 
a way to measure whether or not your faith, that vehicle, is continuing to move. And you know what it is? Sacrificial giving. This has been God's way since the beginning. Please hear what I have to say, Christian. Whether it was a goat in the Old Testament or dropping some money in the offering box in the New Testament to the way that we sacrificially give to God today. God has been asking his people to separate themselves from that thing which they're depending on. Well, I can't give God money or a goat. I need that to live. And God says, no, you need me to live. So I'm going to ask you to sacrifice so that what will happen? Trust will grow. This is the best book I have ever read on the Christian relationship to money and resources. If you haven't read this, it's called The Treasure Principle. My mom gave it to me when I was a teenager. And she kept it on our, our, uh, uh, our coffee table. And so I read this a couple times. It's so short. You could probably read it in an afternoon before the Super Bowl even. I highly recommend that you read this. It's by Randy Alcorn, The Treasure Principle. Really the best book. And I want to read you just a small little glimpse on what the Bible says about your relationship with money and how it relates to your faith. Okay? Listen to what it says. The very, very beginning of this little book. Randy Alcorn says, 15% of everything Jesus taught relates to how a person thinks about his money and his possessions, 15%. And he goes on to say, that's more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. So you know this is important to Jesus. Why did Jesus put such an emphasis on money and possessions? Because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and our health and how we think about and handle money. We may try to divorce our faith and finances, but God sees them as inseparable. Pick up this book. I highly recommend you read it. Let me show you in the Bible one verse where the Apostle Paul talks about how Christian people are supposed to think about money. In this passage, he's talking about the rich, but the principles are for all Christians. And in the grand scheme of things, all Americans, even our poor, are wealthy. Think about what Paul says here. 1 Timothy six seventeen through 19. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to, listen, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't trust your money, he's saying, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous. Stop right there. That word means not giving the bare minimum. Just in case you're wondering. The bare minimum principle that the Bible gives us is 10%. That's the starting point for brand new Christians. The starting point. Paul says Christians are to be extravagant, generous givers. Continue. And to be ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, there might be somebody sitting here saying, Pastor, I can't afford, I can barely afford to eat. I'm not rich. I can't afford to give anything to the Lord right now. To which I'd like to respond. Jacob was starving. 
and decided that he needed to trust God more than he needed to trust to keep all that honey and all the stuff that they ate in his possession. It would seem that the Lord found a person, a single person. Jesus found a single person to highlight and accentuate as kind of the poster child of what Christian giving should look like. You all know this story. When I start to read it, you'll go, oh, yeah, he's right. Jesus lifted this person up and said, that's the example of how I want all my followers to think about giving. May I read it to you? It's in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. So if you're saying, Lord, I can't give anything. Listen. And he, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Picture it. Imagine you're there sitting next to Jesus. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he calls his disciples to him and said, you imagine, oh, teachable moment, he's saying. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they, key point here, for they all contributed out of their abundance. Time out. Know what he means? They didn't make a sacrifice. They gave out of their abundance. This didn't didn't mean anything to them. Why? Because they had so much that giving that bare minimum, it didn't cause them to have to trust God. Giving is for you. If you really want, I want a deep relationship with you, Lord, it means you have to give. Giving sacrificially causes trust in God. Continue with what it says. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. So Jesus makes this, which this one went down in history as the example. Why? Because she said, Lord, this is all I have here. I trust you with my life. I can't eat now unless you help me. And Jesus says, that's the example. That's the example. Are you giving generously or just the bare minimum? Something to consider. Do you want your relationship with God to grow to the kind that a Peter or an Abraham had? He wants you to generate that trust engine of your faith. And according to the Bible, this has a lot to do with how you handle and think about your finances. So, three principles. I told you they were going to be the same. Three practical things you can do if you want to trust the Lord more with your resources. Same three. Release it. Invest it and pray over it. First, release it. Release it. To trust God with your resources, all of them. That may be just not just be your money, but your house. We need somebody to house interns. Your house, your car, your tools. We need those resources to do the work of God. To trust God with those resources is to acknowledge, once again, that none of it belongs to you. None of it. It has all been put on loan to you. This, for some reason, seems to be the hardest thing to get people to realize. Well, that's my hammer. No, it isn't. Well, that's my money. I work hard for it. No, it isn't. It's the Lord's. It's the Lord's. And so, we give to him out of the abundance of what he's already given us. This is the principle of the Old Testament. Do you know, David said this so plainly. And the scribe Ezra wrote it down. Listen to what David said. He said, 1 Chronicles 29, Who am I and what is my people that we should 
be able thus to offer willingly. In other words, why in the world would the Lord make this an option for me to give? It all belongs to him anyway. Look at how he continues. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Just follow David's mind here. This is your stuff anyway. And yet you give us the choice to give to you? Yes, because he wants you to develop trust. It has to come from you, a sacrificial giving. But it's all his anyway. That's what David's saying. Everything we have belongs to God. We are only stewards. The single most important act of trust is to release release it to him. Second act of trust, same thing as before, you need to invest it. To trust God with your resources is to acknowledge that he's given you these things. Think about it. When I say things, I'm leaving that vague on purpose. Think of all the stuff you have. Money in the bank, investments, resources, retirement, everything has been given to you for his purposes. He made you thinking, I'm going to make this young lady, I'm going to make this young man, I'm going to give them this in their life so that they can use it to grow my kingdom. How much of it are you using for that purpose and how much of it are you using for your own purposes? To trust God means to make Matthew 6, 19 through 20 the principle of your life. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Jesus is saying that would be a horrible investment. Horrible. And where thieves break in and steal. But... Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, this is a wise investment. Where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. If you use the majority of your money for things that are perishing, poor investment. If you use the majority of your money to make disciples and further the work of God, wise investment. It's really pretty simple, isn't it? We make it so complicated. It's simple. Finally, if you want to learn how to trust God, you need to begin to pray for it. Pray. So first, release it. Second, invest it. Third, pray for it. To trust God with your resources is to acknowledge, listen, this is real important, his promise to care for your needs. Do you realize, that's what James was saying, don't put your trust in your riches. If you really stop and think about it, where do you place your ultimate trust? How much money you have in the bank or in God's promise to care for your needs? Listen to what he taught his disciples in Matthew 6. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So when you come and you say, Pastor, I can't give to the Lord's work right now. I don't have enough money to pay for this or that. Jesus would say, Don't you know that your Father knows you have need of these things? Don't you know? He would say, Trust The Lord. Trust the Lord. Two pennies, the widow. As Jacob trusted God with his resources, so too does God desire that you do the same. And so listen. Everything you have has been put on loan to you by God. When you get to heaven, when I get to heaven, God will finally ask, what did you do with what I gave you? The third and final point for today, if you want to begin trusting God, is to trust him with your family. This may be the hardest one of all. Even if... Family is scarce. That's what's happening here with Jacob. Lord, he's all I have left. He's all I have left. Scarcity of family. Trusting God with your family. I hope you write this down. Trusting God with your family will release you of the obligation of having to pretend to be God to them. 
You following me? This is the only reason that most of us would hesitate to release someone into the care of God. Look back at verses 13 and 14, the key to the the whole passage. Jacob finally says, after three times of being asked, Take also your brother, Benjamin, and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty, this is a proper name, a name of God. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, he's come to the final conclusion. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. His trust engine has started moving again. The pistons are going. Do you see that in verse 14? If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. In my own words, Lord, you are God Almighty. That's the proper name, which is El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the name given to God because of his sovereignty over everything that happens in the universe. So, Jacob says, you are El Shaddai, the sovereign commander of everything, including my kids. So, Lord, listen to what he's saying. If something bad should happen to my kids, even if they die, they're yours. I recognize, and here's the point, that you are their sovereign commander and I am not. I am not. Despite the fact that this is obvious for most of us, it might be one of the hardest things for parents to do and husbands. Real quickly, when my wife went off to Africa without me, I thought I was good until she got there. And then I started having like severe problems. I almost had like a nervous breakdown because I thought she was never going to come home. And I really, God had to show me how stalled my trust engine had become. You say you trust me? We'll see what happens when your wife is in Africa and you're at home with the kids. See how much you trust me. I learned a big lesson when she was gone. How much do you trust me with your wife, Luke? Apparently not a lot back then. And so, why, why is it, do you suppose, that most of us, parents especially, fail to, to trust God with our family? There's one word, one word. You know what it is? Safety. Safety. We want to keep our family safe. That's why I was scared when Ashley went to Africa. I was scared for safety. I thought she was going to get raped or murdered and never come back. The reason why we hoard over our kids, because of safety. Well, what I'm going to say next might come as a shock to some of you who have never heard this kind of teaching before. Safety is a myth. It doesn't exist. It's a mirage. It doesn't exist. One of the most profound profound truths of the Bible is this, and interestingly, it came up several times for me this week. It comes from this little book. I, I put it in this bucket so the people who come here can see this because I've found this to have some of the most profound truths of the Christian life I've ever read. Tiny little book. That's it. And this book by John Piper, Risk is Right, I read as often as I can fit it into a sermon, little parts of it, so that maybe those of you who haven't read it will be enticed to read more. That's why I keep bringing it up with me. And there's a portion of this that is entitled Safety's a Myth. You have to hear it. Interestingly enough, we were at a bookstore just yesterday. I pulled a random book off the shelf. Same exact idea. Safety's a myth. (laughs) So I'd like to read to you what John Piper says in this. He says this. You don't know if your heart will stop before you're reading this page or for you before you finish hearing this service. You don't know if some oncoming driver will swerve out of his lane and hit you head on the next week. 
You don't know if the food in the restaurant that you may have, that you're going to go to after church, may have some deadly bacteria in it. You don't know if a stroke may paralyze you before the week is out or if some man with a rifle will shoot you at your shopping center on Monday. We are not God. We do not know about tomorrow. Therefore, this is key, risk is woven into the very fabric of our lives as human beings. We cannot avoid risk even if we want to. The fact that we're ignorant means we don't know everything like God does. The fact that we're ignorant and uncertain about tomorrow is the native air that we breathe. Ignorance and uncertainty is how we're born into the world. All of our plans for tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home hiding under the covers or ride the freeways. One of my main aims in writing this book is to explode the myth of safety and to somehow deliver you, oh listen, of the enchantment of security. Because it's a mirage. It doesn't exist. Every direction you turn, there are unknowns and things beyond your control. The futility of finding a risk-free place to stand has paralyzed many of us. Well, if I just stand here, then I'll be safe in my life. Well, if I just stand here, then I'll be safe. You live in a fallen world. There is no safe place to stand. He continues, I've tasted this in my own pastoral leadership. There are decisions to be made, but I can't see which decision is best. There are so many unknowns. The temptation for me is to run away, if not physically, emotionally. Just think about something else, maybe. I'll put it off. I'll procrastinate. Hope the problem goes away, but it never does. And our paralysis is serving no one. The paralyzing fear of making a decision serves no one. It's cowardice. Risk is the only way forward. You've got to read the rest of the book if you haven't already. So let me finish with these three final practical steps for you to begin trusting God with your family. Instead of hoarding over them, you've got to be safe. You've got to be safe when you know it's, it's a myth. You can't keep them safe. Release them, invest in them, and pray for them. Three same steps. Number one, release them. This is the simplest one. You have to realize they're not yours. My wife is not mine. That's what God finally taught me in Africa. Seriously. When I was on my knees crying at night, God said, Luke, I put her on loan to you. You keep saying, my wife, my wife. She's not your wife. She's my daughter first on loan to you. And so, yes, sir. And so, do you trust me with her or not? Release them into my care. Finally, invest in them. This is a big one. To trust God with your family is to acknowledge His hand of purpose over them. Listen, to hoard over your family and not let them go, to be scared that something's going to happen to them all the time. Well, if they go there, this is going to happen. Listen, that's your way of saying, I can take better care of them than God can. This is really what you're saying. If you really believe that they belong to God, you will say, Lord, I recognize that you have a plan for them, and your plan for them might be that they die in martyrdom. What a glorious life, according to God. According to most Americans, what a wasted life. Most parents would never say, son, go off to a foreign country where the gospel is not preached and die for the cause of Christ. Never say that. No, you stay home under the covers with mommy and daddy. Because I want to keep you safe. Your job as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a good friend who loves people, is to say, you are God's. 
I'm going to find in my children what God wants to do with their life and partner with him in it, even if that means they die in a foreign country. Easy to do? No way. The right thing to do? Absolutely. Finally, pray for them. To trust God with your family is to acknowledge his sovereign authority over them and acknowledge your role in his unfolding plan. You have a role. The primary work of the people of God is prayer. The primary work of the people of God is prayer. A final verse before we close. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The depth of your trust is made known by what you're willing to risk. Christian, one final exhortation. Don't play it safe in your life. Don't. You want your life to count for something in the end? Take a risk for Christ. Take a risk with your money. Take a risk with your time. Take a risk with your family and lead the way by taking a risk with your own life. If you want to live a life that matters in the end, one that has a great impact on your family and your friends, risk it all for the cause of Christ. Because in the end, whatever you've entrusted to God is what will last. So trust it all. Lord, I come to you now in the name of Jesus, asking that you would help us to be a risky people. And in so doing, that our trust would grow What would happen, Lord God, if every one of us in this church said, Lord, I'm ready to step out of the boat of safety and on to the uncertainty of the waters. But at your command, Lord Jesus, I will step out. I will give of my money more than I think I can give. I will give of my time even if it's running out on me because I want to store up treasure in heaven. And I will give of my resources and of my family even if they seem to be fading away before my eyes. And in so doing, I will become rich beyond measure according to the scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would help us to give it all away. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.